to the Colossians passage. And in the, I'm always struck when we read the, uh, or whenever I read the Genesis passage. Oh, I think we're doing double duty. Time out. I didn't, I didn't think of that earlier. Um, in the Genesis passage, when this, this is like fast food in the day. Hurry and let's prepare this meal. And, and then just even in the making of the, of the bread, that seems like, okay, this is a project. But then he takes a cow and he slaughters it. Okay, this is, this is not a very quick meal here. So I, I, I just find that humorous when, we, when I read that passage. So um, we're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 through 28 today, and it's just, it is a glorious passage. And then it is so long, like we could do multiple sermons on this length of the text. So we're just going to skim some highlights, and I think I'm going to give you some of the some explanation on some of the most, uh, whatever, confusing concepts so that by the end we actually uh, can have greater hope and faith in the one who saves us. So let's pray together. Oh God, you declare your mighty power, mighty, almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, it is uh, vacation season. Have, uh, how many people have been to the beach already this season? Well, so some. How many people have ever been to a beach? All right, that, then good, good. Um, have you ever been out in the surf at the edge of the water and had the waves hit you? And then, like, by surprise, you're taken out by a wave. And so you're tumbling, and you're, you don't even know which ends up. And you're, you don't know where your feet are to, to be versus your head. And then you finally find some ground. You stand up, and yet another wave hits you. And you're just kind of like, am I ever going to come out of this? We're tossed about by the power and force of the water. And we don't even know, our, we, we have no bearings. We have no place to rest our feet, to take a stand to then assess what we should be doing next. Well, in our world of uns- that's filled with uncertainty, it's filled with lack of hope, uh, has increasing chaos, it is easy to fall into despair. It's increasingly difficult to know what we can believe, what we should believe, or what we can't believe, what we should not try to believe. It's trying that discernment between truth and falsehood is more and more challenging all the time. So where can we turn to find something solid on which we can find our support, on which we can rest? From that point from which we can look at the rest of the world and better interpret the world around us. Well, the church at Colossae was in a similar situation in their day. False teachers were leading people astray. Now, this church, um, and, so, and so Paul's writing this letter to address the church at Colossae, and, and, and so that they're prepared to do battle with the false teachers. 
Paul, like it's our understanding that Paul did not uh, plant this church, but maybe Epaphras did, and Epaphras would have planted this church probably at the guidance or direction of Paul. Paul, in verses 5 through 7, which we didn't read, this is, we started in 15, 5 through 7, Paul tells the Colossians to hold on to the word of truth, which is the gospel, as they had heard it from Epaphras. That's the solid ground on which they are to stand to interpret the world around them, to interpret and filter through as they're hearing messages from false teachers. They filter those through this true gospel which they heard from Epaphras is what Paul's telling them. And so then he's going to go on to explain why they can do that. And that's in our section. The gospel has the power to restore your hope because of who Jesus is. Who is the one who has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son? As we're as we're looking, that's, um, that's up in verse uh, 14, 13. Who is this Jesus who has done that? So we're going to begin in 15, and we're going to look first at Jesus is supreme in, as creator. Jesus is supreme as creator. So 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So let's start with this image of the invisible God, the first few words of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And there is a thought that when we're talking of an image, what we could be talking about is simply, is simply something that gives you an image that points to something greater, something real, like an image in a mirror, which is pointing, it's a reflection pointing to the real person. That's really not what Paul has in mind here. Paul has something more like manifestation or revelation. It is through this image that God is revealed to the people. For Paul, we know that in Romans 1 and in or I mean Romans and in 1 Corinthians that Jesus bore the image of Adam. So we have something unique going on here that the Jesus bears the image of the first man, Adam, but he uniquely manifests then this earthly man that is as desired, and he also, also manifests the heavenly God. So where Jesus is, God is present. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. If, if Jesus is in your presence, God is in your presence. It says he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, our creed says. Paul is not describing something that is created in this verse. Um, there has been confusion over, uh, well, like since the beginning, of what this means. 
Um, and then in, in the early fourth century, uh, Arius, so Arius has a heresy named after him, and it's the Arian controversy. So um, sometimes it's not good to have your name forever known in history because you're simply a heretic. But he studied the Bible, he ran across this passage, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus was something more than man, but something less than God the Father. So now he can't really be God and, and God the Father be God, or you might be called a polytheist. So you, we, and all throughout the, the history of God's redemption, there is, it's known that God is one. So in order to avoid this seeming heresy of being a polytheist, meaning multiple gods, God's one, so he, he reckoned that Jesus is a little lower than God, but higher than man. Well, this was not thought highly of by others. So Athanasius of Alexandria, he contested his views, and this, this controversy led to the Council of Nicaea in 325. And then after that, and, and, that, and so some things out of the, for like the nature of the Godhead, this three in one, the Trinity, that nature that we take for granted was beginning to be established at 325 AD. And then it was further developed, and in 381 at Constantinople, this was finalized. And then just for the sake of continuing this council thing in, in Chalcedon in 451, the two natures of Christ was then settled out of another heresy, out of multiple heresies. Like, what is, is he, is he part, is he part God and part man? He, well, he's fully God and fully man. And that was then established in 451. So that, that's just bonus. The, 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 the 325, 381 are extremely pertinent to our discussion. And the language that's used in the creed, which was hammered out in these two councils, um, is what we say today. So we talk about he is, um, he's, he's the creator of all things visible and invisible, that he is the only begotten son of God. This, this term firstborn of creation does not indicate creation. Actually, it sets, the whole context sets it apart, meaning in this context, it is not a, a uh, term to indicate order, but of preeminence, that of, of supremacy, of, of, uh, of what's important. So he is the most important. It, it, it does not indicate a created being. And the rest of the context of this passage shows that he is separate from creation and yet over it. Everything that was created is created through him. The Jews' ears would have heard this firstborn language and known what to do with it, whereas maybe we don't. They hear firstborn and that they understand that this would indicate the one who is going to inherit and manage all that the Father has. And so a commentator has said in his father's Jesus is his father's representative and heir and has the management of the divine household, meaning all of creation committed to him. So it is a position of privilege. 
not of created order. He is the instrument through which the Godhead created everything. The Father's plan is executed by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. That's the language that Paul uses in these verses. It is through him, it is by him, through him, and for him. All things on heaven and all things of, uh, of heaven and earth. So I think that's interesting that part of the heavens are created realms by Jesus. He is preeminent or most important over all things, and therefore he's able to hold them together, is what the text is saying. So Jesus is supreme as creator, and this hymn is continuing. This, so this is thought to be, 15 through 20, is thought to be a hymn which may have been in circulation at the time, and Paul may have just inserted this hymn. Paul may have developed the hymn and, and uh, adapted it some to uh, reflect the glories of Christ. But the hymn continues. We've seen that Jesus is supreme as creator. And as the hymn continues, we see that Jesus is supreme as redeemer. So these, and, and I would say we don't often think of Jesus as creator. We, we might just say that that was God the Father who spoke the world into existence. But, the, but what Paul is saying is he, Jesus, is the agent of creation, and all things were created by him. So he's supreme over creation. He's supreme as redeemer. Verse 18 uh, through 20 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 19, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul used this body metaphor for the, the church, the, the, uh, the body of believers. He's used this metaphor in other places, but here he speaks of Jesus as the head. So he's the head of the body. He is the source for the body. He is the source for wisdom, giving the body direction, order, balance, telling the, telling the body where to go, what to do, and how to do it. As we believe, we are connected to Christ, the head. And he is the source for life for the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's the supreme one. A, a position of privilege, not necessarily order. He is the greatest. Because all things were created by him, through him, and for him. And because he is the firstborn from the dead, he is the greatest of all things and is able to reconcile all things to himself. Again, whether they're on earth or whether they're in heaven, he is able to do this. So, when we talk about the fall in Genesis 3, and, and the, it, it's, there's way more than simply um, a disobedience of eating of the fruit, the, of the forbidden fruit. This, I think, is, uh, should be a lesson for us that, 
there's way more that happened than first meets the eye. I think when we are disobedient to the Lord, there's way more that happens than first meets the eye for us as well. Um, but when we talk about that, where then this perfect union that they had with the Lord in the uh, visiting with him in the cool of the day in the garden kind of thing, this comes to an end and they are expelled from the garden. And we know those basic things and those are, those are like you don't have to have much imagination or education to know that this is bad. But we understand then that that brokenness or a uh, discontinuity or a, <clears throat> a, a separation has happened, yes, between God and man, but also between man and man. And, and we get to that because we read chapter 4 in Genesis, and one of the sons kills the other. So there's, there's something going on that everything's not love and peace and harmony as it was in the garden. So there's discontinuity, there's contention between God and man, between man and man, between man and the world, or nature, if you will, or creation. But then beyond that, it's also in here. It's within himself or herself that we get messed up. Like this sin, this eating of the forbidden fruit, this rebellion, this desire to be God created all kinds of rippling effects. And then that, we understand, becomes original sin which is imputed to us as we are born. We, we understand this because the Bible says this, that as we are born, we are born into Adam and we are, we are going to sin. Why? Because we are sinners. We have a brokenness about us. And it's and, and this where Jesus is this image of the first man, he becomes something that reconciles that and corrects it. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the fall in Genesis 3. But what is the fix for all of that brokenness is listed right here. It's the blood of the cross that reconciles all things on earth or in heaven, meaning me and you, back to Jesus. He restores what is broken in the fall by the blood of the cross. This reconciliation has had a beginning. We are not, if, if you're like me, you don't have to look far for sin or still the fighting and the battle of the old man, that stuff is still going on and will become complete when we reach glory or Christ returns. But the reconciliation has begun. The, the kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom has come. We're not waiting for the kingdom to come. We're waiting for the kingdom to come in full. The consummated kingdom. The kingdom has come and there has been a reconciliation, a healing that the powers and principalities now have been returned under Christ's rule. And so as, as wicked and as bad as things are, we understand that the devil is actually chained because the blood of the cross. He still roams, but he has been chained, and he can only go so far. Whereas prior to the cross, he was roaming freely. So this is good news, and it's good news that we have a foretaste of what is to come. So as, you, as you're set out of darkness and into the light, out of the world and into the body, the church, 
And, and, we, and we frequently think when we're talking about the church where it's a little white building on the hill or whatever, we're talking about the body of Christ, but like God has this plan that we as consumeristic, uh, evangelical Americans, we're, we want what we want when we want it how we want it. God says, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to save you out of the world and into my body, the church. And it's in the church that you are going to have a foretaste of what is to come. So when you are feeling like we're being beat about to and fro by the waves, there is hope because God has rescued you out of the world and into the church. And if you've been in the church more than five minutes, you recognize this is a very imperfect place. I don't care what church you're in. It's a very imperfect place. So it's not yet perfect, but the reconciliation has, be has begun. So we are the people who are to be the people who are repenting, the people who are believing, the people who are walking out our faith and exercising it among each other as we bring our gifts into the church to challenge and, and encourage one another, agitate each other into our walk with Christ. As, as, that's a bit of a paraphrase of uh, Hebrews. Um, at any rate, this, this reconciliation that has happened because of how I just, just described the fall, so it's, this is like a, 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 it's a big thing. This is bigger than big. It's cosmic in nature. So the reconciliation that has happened has been cosmic in nature. There's something extreme about what happened on the cross. And by the blood of the cross, Jesus is able to reconcile all things to himself. So he is supreme in creation. He's supreme in redemption. And now we see that Jesus is supreme as we receive his grace personally. So we got a lot of verses to cover, and we're not going to cover them all. So start with me in 21 and 22, then we're going to jump to 27. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, or, and if you're, if you're like me, you want to think that's surely talking about somebody else. But this is talking about, if you're a believer, this is talking about you. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Then 27. To them, that means the saints from verse 26 is who he's talking about. To the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's, here is the good news. This Christ who is supreme in all creation, he is supreme in reconciliation or redemption, and he has caused this cosmic reconciliation has come to you. That Christ has come to you. He died for you. You are reconciled to the Father through the blood of the cross. Paul has us flying at like some 50,000 kind of feet level. So we're seeing and appreciating and getting to know 
the glories of Christ's work in creation and redemption. And we are fascinated. We are in awe. And then Paul takes this as from a, takes us from this 50,000 foot level and he swoops down in the plane and then he lands this plane in our own personal garage. This gets very personal very quick. It was so far off just a couple of verses ago, but now it's here and it's very personal. But this is the way our Lord works. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in the blood of his flesh by his death. So, so you need not be disheartened in our troubled world. Now, I'm not promising trouble is going to leave you. Actually, I'm promising you trouble will continue. But in order, how do we cope? Well, we recognize and we rehearse this gospel to ourselves on a regular basis so that we have some footing on which we can interpret the world around us and understand what is true and what is false. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the scripture says. Sin had a devastating effect on all of creation. The cure of that sin was the blood of the cross, and by it Christ reconciled all things to himself. While you were hostile and doing evil deeds, Christ loved you and made you his. But why? I gotta say, but why did Christ, why did he do this? Remember, he created all things by him and through him. And for him. We have, there have been theologians who have talked about how we serve a selfish God. And already that just like your, your ears kind of hurt. You're like, whoa, that can't be right. But God has this plan that he does things all for his glory. Not your glory. In your story of redemption, you're not the star. God is. And it's so that He may be glorified. Now, we have been through this already in this passage, but let's go outside the Bible in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which many are familiar with. And it's the first question, and it's the shortest question just that I had to memorize. The, so, in the, uh, what is this, the eight, in the 1800s, if you were a child in England, uh, you probably memorized the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. We actually did catechisms with our kids, but they were a, a shorter, shorter version. They were a child's catechism, like I think a child should actually be able to learn. I had to actually memorize in sections the Westminster Shorter Catechism in order to get out of uh, seminary. You didn't get a grade for it. You didn't have to pay for this one, but, but you had to have this passed in order to get out. And, and uh, being an old man, I, you know, I can hardly remember Becky's name. I mean, I, I can't remember anything. And, and we did it in sections. So there are 100 and whatever, seven questions or something like that. So you did it 33, 34, 35 at a time or something. But uh, by the time I did my last section, I thought, well, good Lord, I'll just never make it through. But this is the first question, and it's very easy, and it's very short. And the question is, what is the chief aim of man? Amen. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
So the, the catechism, these men didn't gather around and just come up with some neat things that they thought God ought to say. They've taken this from the scriptures, and including the scripture that we just read. So to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, Paul says in the rest of 22, he says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. It is not in your doing, but in His doing that Christ sanctifies you and makes you able to sit in the presence of a holy God. He rescued you when you were His enemy, so that He could make you holy and blameless before Him, so that He may be glorified. So that He may be glorified. Not you, but He may be glorified. This is, all things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. Therefore, why do you do what you do? Why do you do anything you do? And, and I know we can get into the selfish motives. I do mostly what I want, when I want, how I want. Well, the power of sin has been broken by the blood of the cross. And by the gifting of the Holy Spirit, we have now the ability to overcome only what I want, when I want, how I want. And so our driving desire is to bring glory to Christ. After all, that's His desire for us. It is not so that we were saved out of the world and have an have a easy, battle-free life. It is so that He would be glorified. So why did we plant Redeemer? So that God would be glorified. Why do you go to work? So that God would be glorified. Why do you obey your parents? Why do you obey your teachers at school? Why do you try to do good at school? And I will say, we probably have wrong motives lots of times. Like, I want somebody to think well of me, therefore. But what about the greater good is for God to be glorified? So why do you do what you do? Whatever it is, should be so that God is glorified. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we, as rescued saints, are no longer flailing about being beaten by the waves. We have been rescued and set on solid ground. We have been given this firm foundation from which we can assess the rest of the chaotic world around us and no matter how chaotic it is or out of control it may seem, your life still has purpose. You're still, your life still has meaning. You're still, your life still has significance because of what you've been saved into and that purpose for glorifying God. Your life has purpose and meaning because of who is your head. Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. He's the one who created you. He's the one who has redeemed you so that he could call you his own. And in doing so, he is glorified. Now, there's the truth that we need to walk in, in this chaotic world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.